because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sitting in for Alex Epstein this week, I'm Dom Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress, and with me is CIP's Head of Research, Stefan Henna. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Dom. All right, well, let's jump right in. The Trump administration announced that it's going to change the way the Endangered Species Act is applied. So the administration's alterations don't actually change the law, but they do change how the government is going to enforce it. And the new rules are designed to make it easier to remove a species from the endangerment list and lower protections for threatened species, that is the classification one step below endangered. Now, as a general view, I think that preserving species can be a worthy goal, but it should be from the perspective of human flourishing. That is, is this species valuable to us directly or indirectly, and how valuable? And just by indirectly, I have in mind that you know we might not directly benefit from it as food or something like that, but it might be vital to a particular uh, habitat that we ha- that there's other valuable things that we get from it. But the Endangered Species Act explicitly prevents us from asking those kinds of questions. That is, from looking at it from a human perspective. The whole idea is that we are supposed to preserve species, whatever the level of sacrifice required from us, regardless of the costs. And that is, I mean, it's literally true. So that under current law, to make a determination about whether a species belongs on the endangerment list and therefore gets all kinds of different protections, it has to be made without reference, I'm quoting, to possible economic or other impacts of determination. Now, that is an insane provision. Like, if you think about what a cost means, a cost has a major impact on human life. That is, you know, if you, if you deprive a community of a billion dollars, people will d- uh, die sooner. And so what this really means is that the life of an endangered spider or whatever is worth more than any number of human lives and any amount of human happiness. And as I mentioned, Trump is not changing the law. He's he they have not said that, no, now we're going to start taking in costs, which would require taking into account costs, which would require an act from Congress. It's merely disclosing the cost to the public. It's saying that all right, this is going to have this much of a financial impact on you. And I mean, that seems reasonable, right? Like if we are the ones who have delegated to the government saying, yeah, we want to preserve species, it seems that being informed about, well, what are the trade-offs involved in that is the least that could be done. But environmentalists, unsurprisingly, are complaining. Uh, The way the New York Times puts it is that change conservation group sphere opens the door to business interests coming in to discussions of whether a species should be protected. And to put that as business interests is really interesting because like, what is a business interest? It's just the ability to produce the wealth that human beings need to flourish. And so what they're really objecting to is not business interests, but human interests. And If you want to see in vivid detail what this really means in practice, I mean, we could go through stories of the kinds of development projects that are shut down, not to protect something that like everybody's really invested in, like bald eagles or polar bears, but over, you know, like literally bugs, spiders and 
animals that you've never heard of and wouldn't care about if you did hear about them. But I'm not even uh, even more, I think, illuminating than that is the Wall Street Journal had an editorial recently that really drives this this framework of thinking about species preservation home. So earlier this year, there was a rat infestation or there is a rat infestation in downtown Los Angeles near a homeless encampment, and it led to an outbreak of typhus. And in fact, cases of the flea-borne disease had more than doubled since 2012. Now, California's EPA had a pretty sensible response, which is they put out rat poison. But environmentalists, of course, complained. Why do they complain? Because it would harm the species that prey on rats. And so now there's actually Democrats in California who are moving to uh, ban what are called second gen- generation uh, rodenticides that are more potent than earlier poisons. And the reason they want th- the reason that people are interested in this more potent form of poison is because the old ones that won't be banned, rats have started to develop to develop an immunity to it. And so this is a finding that went along or an analysis that went along with this bill. It said predatory species such as raptors, bobcats, and foxes regularly consume rodents as part of their diet. Poison rodents also become more lethargic and exhibit abnormal behavior. But data are less conclusive in pointing to um, anticoagulant rodenticides as the specific cause of death in these animals. So in other words, it's saying, well, we're not really sure that these poisons are hurting these predator species. But what we do know is that rodents are carrying diseases that are really hurting Californians. But to environmentalists, that does not matter because we cannot consider the cost to human beings. Any thoughts on this, Stefan? Yeah, I, I found the Endangered Species Act uh, really an evil piece of legislation back a couple of years when I first uh, encountered the actual text. And it has a lot of illogical things to it. And one of the things that I I have encountered is that this legislation requires the federal government to protect species no matter what why they are endangered. So if like dinosaurs were around and they were about to go extinct naturally, we would have to protect them with taxpayer money so there's no for no reason any animal could ever die if we take this literally so this is a very illogical piece of of uh, legislation and of course this new interpretation or this guidance rule is not going to change the actual endangered species act um so yeah it's an uphill battle and uh we see this all across the world. So in, in Europe, they banned these uh, pesticides called neonicotinoids, um, which allegedly had uh, endangered bee species. And uh, it turned out it wasn't actually a, a real danger to the to the honeybees in Europe. Uh, but nevertheless, these uh, pesticides were banned by the European Union. So this is... It's a really good tool for obstructionist greens to ban all kinds of technologies that are actually life-saving. Stefan, what's your first story? I have a similar story about a, a guidance, new guidance rule by the Trump administration uh, for Section 401 of the Clean Water Act. And this section uh, gives states and certain tribes the authority to review potential water impacts of 
projects like pipelines and export terminals and so on um, before the federal uh, government can give permission to these projects. And so the background is uh, executive order by President Trump uh, from April, which uh, you know wanted to promote and accelerate these kinds of projects. And EPA now, as a, as a result of that, has proposed the new guiding rule. And the background is that uh, several states have uh, abused this kind of um, sort of permission veto right to block projects that didn't comply with their own political agenda, uh, even when the water quality concerns were actually uh, small. So two examples here, New York State has blocked a natural gas pipeline coming in from Pennsylvania recently, and presidential candidate Jay Inslee, when he was governor of Washington State, used the Clean Water Act to block a proposed coal export terminal. And so the new uh, guidance rule requires this permission process to issue a permission no later than one year after the application, which is sort of limiting the ability of state governments to stall projects they don't like. Uh, think about Keystone XL, the now infamous pipeline project that is, uh, I don't know if it's a record, but it's 11 years and counting. Um, for this to be built from Canada to to uh, the refineries in Texas. Um, and it also will limit the scope of the state review to actual water impacts and not, you know, have some side issues in there. And uh, so it's already visible that this will likely be contested in court because, of course, uh, certain state governments like that of New York and California and elsewhere, they do want to be able to block projects they don't like, like pipelines and other energy infrastructure. And uh, so it can be seen as a small victory within the framework, but this doesn't fix the general problem. Uh, One is the general anti-development, not in my backyard sentiment that is also uh, present in large parts of the general population. And it's also not going to, to change the actual law. Um, so you can expect the next administration, which is not as friendly to our infrastructure project as the Trump administration, uh, you know, going two steps back after this one small step forward. Yeah, I mean, generally, I think people are not worried by any single thing like this particular pipeline is being stopped. It just doesn't seem that big a deal. And that's that's a big problem if you want to stop this trend of infrastructure and energy projects being interfered with. And so if you think, well, what do people get upset about? Because one thing that we've cataloged on this podcast is they get upset about every blessed, you know, particle of CO2 that goes into the air. And the the reason for that is that it's seen as part of a larger narrative that anytime you have this narrative that, you know, something like CO2 is destroying the planet, then any contribution to that is seen as urgent and important. And I think that's why what you really need in order to shift the tide on something like this is that people start hearing constantly about a genuine crisis that we face, which is energy deprivation 
That is, we're pushing ourselves towards a crisis because of the lack of reliable energy and infrastructure to reliably deliver reliable energy. And that that has the potential. And in some places, I think we're frighteningly close to realizing that potential of being faced with blackouts and extreme high prices to avoid blackouts. And if people were genuinely frightened by that, then you could see a real movement here where each one of these cases would be seen as like you are contributing to energy deprivation and that has to be stopped. And so I, while I'm certainly happy to see these marginal improvements in the law, I definitely think that on their own, they cannot accomplish a great deal. I want to talk about the latest front in the climate debate, and that is the topic of meat. So following the latest IPCC report, Climate Change in Land, I certainly saw an explosion of articles recommending that people eat less meat or even cut it out entirely. And you know that as soon as something is seen as contributing to climate change, there's going to be calls not just for people to voluntarily stop doing it, but to restrict and ban it. And it turns out that uh, Germany, in fact, is considering a meat tax, or at least what it's considering doing is, whereas for most foods, they're taxed at a lower rate of 7% because they're considered, how would you put it, Stefan, like a vital need or something like that? Yeah, the government thinks like basic needs shouldn't be taxed as highly as others. Right. But now we have lawmakers talking about raising it to the general VAT level of 19%. And the justification is that of this is supposed to be that it will decrease the nation's consumption of meat, which will help animals and help the climate. And in fact, Germany is not the only country exploring the idea of a meat tax. You have at least Denmark and Sweden looking into it. Uh, and Bjorn Lomberg has a piece in the Wall Street Journal where he clarified some of the factual issues surrounding meat. And basically what it boils down to is that meat and everything that goes into creating it is a very minor part of climate emissions, particularly once you take into account the fact that it's not like people just stop eating meat and they don't do anything else. They start making other purchasing decisions. And so if you look at kind of the net reduction from uh, eliminating meat for a person that basically their, 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 their emissions are reduced by uh, 2%. So it's not that big a win. And I think that's important in that, like, if you're going to put your energy behind, we're going to pass this law that would massively inconvenience a lot of people, in particular inconvenience them in the pursuit of their diet, then you would think, well, maybe this should actually have an impact on the problem we say we're going to try to solve. But I think there's a wider issue here, which is just how stunningly unconcerned people are with freedom like that is not even part of the debate it's simply like this has a climate impact so of course the government should discourage or even ban it and and we should all celebrate that and if your whole standard of value is anything that increases co2 is bad and open game for government to regulate i mean that framework is totalitarian it's that any, you have the right to no single choice that impacts the climate. And since every choice you make impacts the climate, at least insofar as it uses energy, 
this means that every choice should be game for government to control and say like, well, this impacts climate and so you can't do it, or at least the government has the right to judge. Well, do we really think that, you know, the public interest justifies this use of CO2? Because presumably we're still allowed to exhale. And underneath that is just a real contempt, I think, for human choice. That is like people choose to eat meat for a reason, whether taste or health or some combination of both. And there's no concern that like, well, that by taking away that choice from people or by artificially penalizing that choice, this could be really bad for them because it's a the experts know best. And we've judged apparently that it's not actually good to eat meat and b we aren't really concerned with human flourishing anyway. And so I the, the the what I want to highlight here is that the kind of policies directed against climate, it's not just that they're not valuing human flourishing, it's that they're not valuing it at the deepest level, which is to flourish is exercising thought and judgment about what's best for your life. And what the whole climate restrictions come from is this perspective that says, no, you shouldn't be free to exercise that kind of judgment and choice that we are going to dictate what you're allowed to do. And our justification for doing it is the idea that you don't have the right to impact climate. Stefan, uh, as somebody who lives in Germany and presumably eats the occasional uh, meat product, what's your opinion on this? Yeah, so you can see the tyrannical nature of this uh, in the level of micromanagement. So not only is the government going to sort of forcefully reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, but it's actually deciding how you do this in great detail, like what your diet will be, right? So normally, you know, as a utilitarian economist, you would, th you would have something like, oh, we need to reduce CO2 overall. And it's, you know, we shouldn't like pick the technologies how to achieve that. We should let innovators and markets decide like what's the best way to do that but the government then uh, you know in addition to something like a co2 tax will also try to micromanage human behavior consumer behavior and this is this is very concerning in addition to the overall uh, nature of this forced uh, co2 reduction um, yeah but it, it so it's it's true that for our CO2 budget as, you know, people living in the developed world, it's not that relevant to, uh, you know, not eat meat overall, but think about the implications uh, just the developing world has. So the vast majority of future emissions will likely come from places like India and China and other developing countries, where literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, like multiple times the population of the United States or the European Union actually are waiting to enter the global middle class and, you know, consume far more goods uh, than they do right now. So it's it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's really, we are arguing about things that don't make a lot, make a huge difference in our context. But since CO2 emissions are a global context, it totally makes no sense to start there with micromanaging human diet in, in Germany or, or Denmark of all places, like very small populations, already very rich people. And, you know, the developing world 
will require a lot of energy. And if we don't have an alternative uh, to fossil fuels, then actually they will have to get that from fossil fuels because nothing is more unhealthy than not having energy. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't make sense to do this if your concern is really making an impact on climate. But if your real concern is to stop people from impacting nature, well, then it makes perfect sense, right? Because the, the, you know, the climate is just a justification for restricting people's freedom to impact nature. And I mean, nothing impacts nature more directly than eating it. All right, Stefan, what's your next story? Okay, so I want to talk about the uh, green utopia that we are sold in uh, mainstream media and uh, advocate narratives. So when we talk about the future of energy, we often hear, you know, words like clean energy, sustainability, renewables, and so on. And this language is actually carefully designed to imply that it will be a smooth ride switching from, you know, the dirty fossil fuels and nuclear, the conventional uh energy systems to, you know, these uh, super, allegedly superior renewables, which is mostly solar and wind, of course. And if this sounds too good to be true, it actually is. Uh, you know, this is selling us a utopia instead of giving us a grasp of what this process would actually mean and, you know, what kind of human suffering we need to endure to to actually accomplish that. So it's you know, presented as a superior alternative that has no real cost. We're just switching from an inferior to a superior technology, and we are better off, actually. And the case in point I just came across today, which is uh, meteorologist and uh, climate alarmist Eric Holthouse, uh, who is also a frequent contributor to GRISP, which is a publication that deals in these alarmist climate uh, narratives. And he, on, on Twitter, <laughs> he said the following. Friendly rem uh, he was actually re reacting to, uh, to signs of a slowing economy. So he said, friendly reminder that comprehensive climate legislation, a radical restructuring of society in order to save our planet's habitability, is the best economic stimulus package we could ever hope for. So, okay, we'll just invest in, in green technology, of course, and then we will be actually better off. And we see this uh, a lot in proposals like the Green New Deal and other, and other narratives. And uh, for those uh, who don't find the historical evidence uh, sufficient since uh, um, at least the mid-19th century, thanks to the French economist Frédéric Bastiat, we, we know that, you know, smashing your working capital doesn't actually make you richer. But uh, to, to drive home this point, I want to point everyone to the work of Mark Mills, who was a former Power Hour guest and is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And here's an article in the Wall Street Journal that's called, If you want renewable energy, get ready to dig. And so this is meant to emphasize that all of these new technologies like solar and wind and battery technology and so on, you know, they require some real work and they have their, their own downsides. And, uh, you know, so I, I just want to read a couple of quotes from this article to emphasize this. And I want everyone to keep in mind one of my favorite themes when we talk about these energy transitions to, to uh, new energy technologies. Uh, and this is the magnitude of the problem. That's a very important point here. 
So the first quote is uh, from Mark Mills is, the International Renewable Energy Agency calculates that solar goals for 2050, consistent with the Paris Accords, will result in old panel disposal constituting more than double the tonnage of all today's global plastic waste. So this is a lot of material, of course, that needs to be dealt with. The second quote is, a single electric car battery weighs about 1,000 pounds. Fabricating one requires digging up, moving and processing more than 500,000 pounds of raw materials somewhere on the planet. So again, the magnitude of the problem. This is a lot of material that has to be digged out of the ground. Um, the next quote is, world demand for rare, rare earth elements, which aren't rare but are rarely mined in America, will rise 300 to 1000 percent by 2050 to meet the Paris Green Goals. If electric vehicles replace conventional cars, demand for cobalt and lithium will rise more than 20-fold. That doesn't count batteries to back up wind and solar grids. So battery electric cars will again require a lot of digging and you know a lot of material needs to be moved and processed. This is why battery electric cars actually have a significant CO2 footprint because the manufacturing is so um, demanding in resources. And the final quote from the article, building enough wind turbines to supply half the world's electricity would require nearly 2 billion tons of coal to produce the concrete and steel, along with 2 billion barrels of oil to make the composite blades. More than 90% of the world's solar panels are built in Asia on coal-heavy electric grids. So this shows in very physical ter terms what these renewables and the clean technology and so on re actually requires. It, it, just like fossil fuels and you know nuclear power and so on, everything requires a lot of human industry and, and uh, processes that have some kind of footprint. And actually, all of these technologies from solar panels to wind turbines to batteries uh, they require fossil fuels to be as quote-unquote affordable as they are right now. So if you would take this away and would force everyone to build a wind turbine with a wind turbine and a battery with a wind turbine, that would actually escalate the cost. And so this would necessarily impoverish hundreds of millions and keep billions of humans in their current state of poverty or worse. So instead of this boon and stimulus to the economy, uh, this is just a friendly reminder that you cannot have a free lunch. It's, it's going to be painful if we are destroying our working capital as is and replace it with an inferior quote-unquote alternative. This will, this will be very problematic. And just like the Soviet utopia that promised a free and prosperous society miserably failed, this is also the future of, of this green utopia that, is, that we're talking. And it's actually very disingenuous, to say the least, to promote this as some kind of better deal. It's just, you know, markets fail and don't find the best solution and fossil fuels are chosen for some arbitrary reason and we would actually be better off just switching to solar. And, you know, this is a narrative that, that prevails, but it's actually false and very dangerous to the future of humans. Yeah, I think it's helpful to take really seriously this idea that they're utopian and get at what exactly that means. So one of the things that is true virtually across the board of utopian thinkers is that they never spend that much time explaining exactly how their utopia is going to work. 
So if you take the communists, communists, they wrote volume after volume, but it was almost all about what was wrong and evil about capitalism. It was not about how communism is going to work. Like, how are we going to decide what to produce and in what quantities and what reason do we have to think that there's going to be innovation and what kind of incentives are we creating and what historical evidence do we have that this has ever worked? And, you know, um, it's basically just capitalism is bad. Get rid of capitalism. And then we'll worry about how our system is going to work later. And then it does get put into practice and later comes and they look around and you get nothing like what they promised. You know, so it's this green utopia, but the green utopia is a bunch of mining and a bunch of uh, blackouts. It is the complete opposite of this kind of fantasy they created. But they actually, in fact, got what they were really after, because what they're really after is not this utopia of communism or this green utopia, but to smash capitalism and to smash industrialization. And so what you're seeing here is the the fact that utopias are actually rationalizations for destruction, whether it's capitalism or fossil fuels. It's, yeah, this is bad compared to my fantasy, but you're not really after a fantasy. It's you're you're tearing down something good and something real, but you need to want to you want to be able to position yourself to others and think of yourself as an idealist. And you can contrast that with people who you might mistake for utopians, but genuine idealists. And that's, you know, the founding fathers of this country where they were profoundly concerned with what positively are we creating? How will it work? What is the evidence of history it's going to work? What are all the ways it could go wrong? And, you know, what is the best possible system that is actually achievable? And, I mean, the Green Movement is not at all idealistic in that sense. It's utopian in the sense that the communists were utopian, which is just a different way of saying that it's actually nihilistic. So my next story goes to a report from the American Psychological Association, which put out a press release saying that climate skeptics are more likely to believe climate claims if they are first reminded of fields of science that they trust. And so there have been a lot of experiments like this, but just to give you some details on what this one was, so researchers went out and they surveyed 700 participants. And so half of the participants were giving surveys that asked questions just generally about people's belief in science, like how credible is the medical data that germs are a primary cause of disease? And then they were asked about their belief in climate science. So it's, you know, how certain are you that uh, global warming explains many of the new weather patterns we are seeing today? And then the other half was just asked about their belief in climate science. And then people reported how they classified themselves politically. And so the researchers say that that it turns out conservatives reported a greater belief in climate science if they were asked questions first about their belief in other areas of science. And one of the researchers kind of described what was going on this way. For climate skeptics, it likely became awkward to report on our surveys that they believed in science while at the same time denying the findings of climate science. That dissonance led many to adjust beliefs to show greater support for the existence of climate change. And he went on to say, it's exciting to know that in the real world settings, we might be able to have more productive climate conversations by starting from a place of common belief. And 
I think that there, I mean, there's something right about this. That is a conversation to be constructive should start from a place of common belief. But what's going on here is starting from a place of common belief and then a non sequitur to accepting a conclusion without evidence. So if you think about the nature of the argument, it's climate, it's science got something right here. So science must have gotten something right in this completely different branch. Well, that doesn't follow at all that what we should really be doing if we're trying to persuade is start from a common goal and a common method so that we can look at the actual evidence and reach a legitimate understanding of what is true and false. So another way to put it is the way that we think about having constructive conversations and framing conversations at CIP is what we're really doing is sharing the framework that convinced us, that persuaded us of our position with another person. Because the proper framework is common sense, even though it's not common practice. So if that you can get somebody's commitment to have as their goal to decide what will best support human flourishing, and then a commitment to look at the evidence and look at the alternatives in a in a non-biased and uh, precise way, then you can have a really productive conversation because you are all headed in the same direction. But what we're seeing here is not real persuasion by sharing the, the method that helped you reach clarity. It's really manipulation. It is finding ways in or it's finding psychological tricks that will make it more likely people will blindly accept your conclusion. So, I mean, this happens in marketing all the time. They've done studies where, you know, they'd have somebody march through a neighborhood, knock on doors and say, do you consider yourself a charitable person? And the person says, oh, yes, I do. And then the next day they send somebody else to say, hey, will you donate this to, you know, to this charity? And what they find is that, you know, a, a significant number more people donate to charity after they've already activated in their mind the idea that, yeah, I'm a charitable person. And I mean, this is that same kind of manipulation, but one problem with it, well, I mean, there's several problems. I mean, one is you can just, you know, do it the other way. It's like, hey, when's the last time that scientists got something completely wrong, like the, uh, you know, the, the so-called nutrition triangle? Um, and then you can ask about climate science more importantly is because it's not based on actually providing people with genuine clarity i would guess with almost 100 percent certainty that this is not an enduring change and if you want enduring change people have to have enduring reasons that is they have to actually see firsthandedly for themselves the evidence for the claim and so so long as people are trying to figure out ways to persuade on climate that doesn't involve actually providing people with clarity I think you're not going to get anywhere. And if you do get anywhere, it is purely by propaganda and manipulation. And I, I think that it is, it's good that people are concerned with this problem of how do we have more productive conversations about these crucial, complex issues. But I would like to see those arguments or those discussions happen in a way that allow us to make better decisions, not ways that just get people to buy into our dogma. So, Stefan, any thoughts on you on this kind of uh, experiment or these kinds of studies? Yeah, so 
it's interesting that they start with saying, okay, a productive conversation is uh, where you first of all agree with my predetermined uh, conclusions, and then we can can have start this conversation from there. So I have a little anecdote from Germany again, where, you know, framing got sort of a bad reputation in the public discussion because uh, some state-sponsored media uh, had revealed that it had a framing handbook. And in this handbook, they had all kinds of um, guidance how to deal with certain topics and things. And one of the examples was like how to deal with people who don't want to um, pay the uh, government, the state media uh, fee. And they would call them then free riders because this is a public service and people just uh, who don't want to pay the fee, you know, to be fed this uh, state media news, uh, they would just be free riders. So they were parasitic in a sense, right? So a very negative thing. And this kind of thing. So you see there, there's a tendency for people to see uh, this as an opportunity to, you know, work some psychological tricks and manipulate the outcome of a conversation as where a proper framework for a conversation is to make certain things clear, like a proper goal. What, what do we want to achieve? What is our common uh, moral uh, uh, goal for uh, any action that we want to take in the future and you know what's the proper process to think these things through and uh, uh, work towards it so there's so framing is often used uh, as a as a terminology to describe something really bad which is more of the manipulative side whereas you know framing as we understand it is to provide a, a clear uh, or clarity and also set up the conversation on the right track so that people can gain clarity by discussing issues. And this is not at all the case. So you can see in the survey, they didn't provide any additional uh, information about any of the uh, facts about climate or, or how to think about this. They, they just sort of made a sleight of hand, you know, manipulating people into, you know, uh, admitting that they don't know a lot about this and then they bow to authority as uh, you know given to them by the by the survey creators yeah i think that's a really important point to stress though is that like a, a framework the reason to be concerned with framework is not because this is a really clever manipulation tactic but it's that we have a framework that it's there whether we know it or not. Every thought process, every conversation has a framework. It has certain methods. It has certain assumptions about cause and effect, and it has certain values. And if you don't make those explicit, if you don't bring those to the forefront, then you don't know what you're counting on. You can't self-consciously examine and apply them. And that leads to the kind of chaos that we see all around us. So it's the whole goal is just to make explicit something that's there already and then be self-conscious about it and make sure that our framework is solid rather than it's one that will collapse. Stefan, why don't we do one more story? Okay, so I recently saw a YouTube video uh, of Dave Jones from the EEV blog, which deals with you know technology, electronics, and so on. And he had uh, another update on uh, something that went viral some years ago, which is solar roads. 
And the basic idea here is that, you know, we could use our road infrastructure uh, also as a power generation infrastructure, in addition to, you know, facilitating our traffic, they, we just combine roads with solar panels and then we have roads that actually produce energy. And so there are a couple of pilot projects on the international stage and some of them failed spectacularly already. So a 2016 project in Normandy, France, for example, funded by the Ministry of the Environment, paved a kilometer of road with solar cells uh, that were specifically developed for this process. As one news report puts it, the solar panels were unable to withstand the wear and tear caused by tractors and thunderstorms, became covered, became covered by leaf mold and created too much noise for local residents, which meant that the speed limit had to be reduced to 70 kilometers per hour. And also the project generated less electric uh, energy than it was hoped at the start. And then there are solar bike pathways in, in the Netherlands, some of which uh, needed frequent repair and a Chinese solar highway also failed. At first they thought, you know, some of the solar panels were stolen by thieves, but actually the investigation showed that uh, they were just grinded to dust. So they found the small particles of solar panels uh, where the road should be. Um, and so you could think, okay, there's something going wrong here. This is a new technology and, and you know, a pilot project failed. Well, they, like solar roads are such an such a bad investment, and you can immediately see this. You you don't even need a pilot project, and you know Dave Jones and others have made sophisticated calculations on why this is a bad idea. But just think about this in in very basic layman terms. So first of all, the road is a very bad surface to put a solar panel on. It cannot be tilted towards the sun, which would be optimal for a solar panel. Right? It has a lot of dirt on it, so it, the solar panel, by the nature of the road, cannot have as much sunlight on it uh, as it should. Uh, and then, of course, the surface of the road needs to be very sturdy. There's heavy-duty trucks running over it, and so there's a lot of wear on the road pavement. And, uh, you know, a standard road pavement already gets destroyed over time by the heavy-duty uh, traffic on it and of course if you build some electronics into it this is even worse and then of course the cost of doing so, that right combining the road with a, with a solar panel you need a special pavement that on one hand is very sturdy on the other hand it also needs to be transparent right so the sunlight can reach the actual solar panel below the surface and so this is a really horrible idea because it combines solar needlessly combines the the sort of dumbest way to install a solar panel with the dumbest way to build a road and so you get all all the worst out of two bad worlds and this is this is this doesn't doesn't require a pilot project so why do governments invest in that and i think it's because it's a green fashion it's like roads and, and traffic and emissions and so on are seen as bad and solar energy is seen as good. So they combine the two and then they pretend this is some kind of, you know, sustainable green version of the bad road. And uh, of course, they can spend taxpayer money on it. 
and uh, uh, they will never be held accountable for that. But on the broader perspective, every time some proposal like the Green New Deal or other advocacy pieces talk about vaguely green investments, I think about this kind of project. This is like there is no technology to replace fossil fuels at this point. Uh, maybe nuclear in the future if we manage to unleash it, but it's not there yet and it will take time to get it there if, if ever. And so when people vaguely talk about green investments and they don't have a concrete plan, I think this is, this is a kind of project we need to think about. It will be a spectacular failure and you know, gobble up a lot of taxpayer money with very little effect. Yeah, I, th I mean, one way I think about it, I mean, I definitely agree there's kind of a mania element to it, but there's also a category of investments that I think of as ideological investments. So, you know, I run in free market circles and there's kind of a subculture in this world of gold bugs. And I don't mean necessarily people who are for the gold standard, which I think has a very strong argument for it, or at least something like a gold standard. But there's these people who just say that like constantly, oh, you have to be investing in gold, you have to be investing in gold. And like ideological uh, investments like these, they inevitably have reasons why it's supposedly brilliant. And look, sometimes they can be right, at least temporarily. Uh, you know, a lot of the early investors in Bitcoin were libertarians who supported it for political reasons. But they're often not thinking about it as an investment. They're not thinking about it objectively. There's just this dogma that gold is good or renewables are good um, or, you know, some kind of digital currency not issued by the government is good. And it can lead to really bad decision making. And I mean, at least with gold, it's a value versus like, I don't even know what the analogy would be for a road. I mean, it'd be like a form of Bitcoin that just like ate up your bank account or something. Like it's, uh, you think, yeah, something that just destroys my bank account is probably not a good investment. Um, but that like, that, that you should just be very wary of, even if you think your ideology is true, uh, of am I seizing on this as a good idea because it actually makes sense on its own terms or am I seizing on it as an idea because it fits what I, the, the kind of moral or political view that I have or one that is, happens to be trendy and popular? Because um, the other way to look at this is that, you know, it's not the, the people who start businesses like these, you know, some of them may be sincere, others you know, this is just their get rich quick, like, you know, the 400th person who comes out with their, you know, keto, keto system diet, um, you, you have to be suspicious of. But, uh, you know, that that said, I think it's very, the, the thing that makes this really bad is that these are often financed and promoted by the government so that, you know, if some gold bug invests a bunch of money in gold, and it turns out to be a bad investment, he pays the price. But when, we have the government, quote, invest in these things. We all pay the price. That's it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me, Don Watkins at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you have any interest in a speech by Alex or anyone else from our team, we've got a lineup of great speakers at different price points. So email me at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you have any high-stakes messaging projects that you'd like to consider working with us on, 
email me and we can set up a quick 15 minute call to go over what your goals are and how we might be able to help. Uh, I want to remind everybody that Alex's Prager University video on the Green New Deal called What's the Deal with the Green New Deal is out there. It's racked up over 2.3 million views already, but I'd like to see that number have an extra zero on it. So go on to YouTube, search for Alex Epstein Green New Deal, and be sure to share it with anybody in your network. As always, you can subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with the latest from the Center for Industrial Progress at alexepsteinlist.com. And we will be back next week with more topics. Until then, I'm Don Watkins with Stefan Henna, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.